Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. The fourth Sunday of Easter, John 16, 16 to 23. Grace be with you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In our Savior, dearly beloved hearers, there are people who wish to be Christians and yet are almost always sad. Their faces almost never light up in joy. They go about gloomy and cross a burden to themselves and others. And what is the reason? One person becomes ill-humored because he sees others get ahead, almost without trouble and work, are happy and rich, while he cannot get ahead. Yes, is even pursued by all manner of misfortune. Another sees himself misjudged. The honor to which he thinks he is lawfully entitled is denied him. A third because he has powerful enemies for whom everything prospers, while his rights are suppressed. In other words, the reason for their sadness is that their affairs are not as they wish. And if one asks them, do you think that you are justly angry? They answer, if not in words, then in their hearts, as did the prophet Jonah, when Nineveh did not fall as he wished. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah 4, verse 9. Christians may seem to have very good reasons for being dissatisfied with their lot and be more sorrowful and angry than joyful and calm. My friends, though the vain joy of the world is ungodly, worldly sorrow is even more sinful. As pious joy is the image of God, so worldly sorrow is the image of Satan. It is the very opposite of faith. Though it often assumes the appearance of Christian earnestness, it is anything but this. Worldly sorrow is, first of all, really secretly murmuring against God, the ruler of life. It is a fruit of pride and self-righteousness. Whoever has really known that he has merited hell because of his sin finds it impossible to be dissatisfied with his lot, no matter how untoward it may be. He recognizes that he has prospered more than he deserved. The word in Jeremiah's Lamentations applies to him. Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Lamentations 3.39 Worldly sorrow is also against the love of one's neighbor. He who is almost always humorless and gloomy becomes a burden to those who are associated with him. Instead of being his brother's comfort and assistance, 
on the trouble-filled road to eternal life, he renders his pilgrimage only the more difficult. But above all, such a person, in the final analysis, hurts himself. For if worldly sorrow begins to rule his heart, faith and love must depart. The Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of joy and peace, can no longer live in that heart. It is, to speak quite frankly, the certain way to eternal sorrow in hell. The Apostle Paul says that quite clearly in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, worldly grief produces death. Christ, therefore, calls his Christians blessed, not only when they are persecuted for righteousness' sake, hatred, reviled, and rejected for his sake, but he also adds, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Luke 6.23 All the apostles demand the same of Christians. Peter writes, Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering. 1 Peter 4.13 James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James 1.2 What the apostles asked of Christians... They also practiced themselves. When they had been scourged by the Sanhedrin at Jerusalem because they confessed Christ, we read that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Acts 5.41 Yes, Paul confesses, In all our, all our afflictions I am overflowing with joy. 2 Corinthians 7.4 not only did the great apostles act that way, but even the ordinary Christians. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews gives us this glorious testimony. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Hebrews 10.34 Now if a Christian should be happy, yes, skip for joy even in the greatest and most severe affliction, is it not disgraceful if a Christian gives way to sorrow and ill humor when his affairs do not go just as he wishes? He gives poor evidence that he has the faith that conquers the world. Yet, as ungodly and harmful as worldly sorrow is, there is another sorrow that is not harmful but most wholesome. Yes, absolutely necessary. That is the godly sorrow over oneself, over one's sins. This sorrow is the way to joy. For godly grief, writes St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.10, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And it is this we wish to consider today. John 16, 16-23, Jesus says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourself? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, 
but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So far, our text. The words that were just read belong to the last words that Christ spoke to his disciples. The sum of these words is that sorrow awaited them. But in the end, They would have joy in time and eternity. Therefore, permit me to show you that godly sorrow is the only way to true joy. Part 1, to the joy of faith in time. And part 2, to the joy of sight in eternity. Let us pray. God, you are a wonderful God. If you want to make us alive, you first let us taste death. If you want to lead us to the light... You first let our darkness become clear to us. If you wish to endow us with power, you first let us experience our weakness. If you want to make us saints, you first make us sinners. If you want to exalt us, you first lead us into the deep valley of humility. Only through the pains of repentance do you lead us to the comfort of faith. Only through hell into heaven, through crying to laughter, through sorrow to joy. Oh, therefore, help us to follow you wherever you want to lead us on this amazing way. May we hold still, whatever you place, your healing hands on the wounds of our conscience, nor resist your spirit of grace whenever he wishes to work on our souls. You always mean well with us. Even your severe blows are only blows of love. For by the things that hurt us, you seek nothing else but our salvation. If we do not let ourselves be led by you, but want to go our own way according to the lusts of the flesh, we are lost. Hence, bless now the preaching of your word, that it may make us all willing to be led in the wonder of your grace, and remain under your discipline until finally we enjoy those pleasures that no one will take from us. Amen. In our gospel, Christ shows his disciples the way in which their faith will be tested and exercised and strengthened and preserved until their entrance into eternal joy. The way in which this happens is also the same way in which true faith is born in the heart. Which is the way that the Lord prescribes for his disciples? He indicates that with the words, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Sorrow, not worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow, is the way to faith. There can be no other way. True faith is not only a dead accepting as true of all which is in the Bible. A person whose heart is still unbroken can have that. True faith is rather a heavenly power worked by the Holy Spirit by which one comforts himself in firm confidence in Christ. Whenever the conscience is disturbed over sin, God's wrath, death, judgment, and hell, it is a power through which a person is born again, 
The love of sin is rooted out, his heart cleansed and renewed, and love to God and one's neighbor poured in. This miraculous change cannot take place in a person as long as he is unconcerned about his sins. Christ compares the birth of true faith with the temporal birth of a child, saying, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Christ wishes to say, This is also the case with the joy of faith. Without the labor pains of true repentance, it also does not come into the world. It is impossible for the plant of faith to spring up and thrive in a soul in which the thistles and thorns of indifference toward sin still grow luxuriantly. It is impossible for the oil of divine comfort of faith to enter a heart that is still stony and unbroken. It is impossible for the soothing salve of the gospel to show its healing power as long as the wounds of sin fester. The Holy Spirit is the doorkeeper of Christ's fold, but this spirit of holiness cannot open the door to one who is still a lover of sin. Christ is a physician of sick people. Whoever goes to him without painfully feeling the sickness of his sins and without seeking a cure for them from him is only pretending. The gospel of grace is a meal of grace. Whoever does not hunger and thirst after righteousness merely acts as if he eats this meal. He deceives only himself. If true faith with its heavenly joy is to enter a heart, the person must, as God says through the prophet Jeremiah, first know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you. Jeremiah 2.19 But if a person is to learn to exult without hypocrisy with David, Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, Psalm 103, he must first have been able to say sincerely with him, For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. I am feeble. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Psalm 38. Repentance and sorrow is not necessary because it is so meritorious in God's eyes. It is necessary because no person, as he is by nature, can truly believe. Only one who is really and truly frightened because of his sins seizes Christ in faith, so that he can then truly say, I know that my sins are forgiven, and I know that I hate sin, and I walk slowly all the years because of the bitterness of my soul, Isaiah 38:15, into which my sins have hurled me. You see that not only those who ignore the Christian faith ignore Christ, ignore God's word and church, and hope in vain for salvation. Many so-called Christians have never experienced true sorrow over their sins. If they imagine that they have faith because they not only go diligently to church, and the Holy Supper, but also conduct their family altar at home, their hope of being saved is also in vain. Sad to say that there are only too many who wish to be Christians, but do not have an earnest concern and dread of sin. At times, in their daily life, they are not strictly conscious, yes, even dishonest. Or they do not always stick strictly to the truth, 
If they are in a difficulty, they tell a little white lie, as they call it. They are slanderers, or they gladly speak evil of their neighbors behind their backs, or otherwise they act lovelessly toward him, or now and then they act like the vain world, or they secretly cling to the god Mammon, or their greatest aim is their own honor, or they give way to a certain amount of rage, they cherish certain impure lusts or envy or hatred and irreconcilableness. Because of all this, their conscience conscience is now and then restless, but they always to seek to convince themselves that this is only a weakness, a trifle. They are still in God's grace. They therefore suppress their agitated conscience and rid their minds of the matter as quickly as possible. However, if they are reprimanded by their brethren, what do they do? Instead of humbling themselves, they deny or excuse or extenuate their sins. From this time on, they, if not openly, then secretly, resent him who reprimanded them, while outwardly they remain friendly toward him. Should such people be Christians? No, of course not. When a true Christian has fallen into sin, he has no rest day or night until he is cleansed through Christ's blood and spirit. Often the smallest sin makes him so miserable and anxious that he does not know where he stands. Whence does it come that many suppose that, with all this halting between Christ and Belial, they are still in the faith? Their faith is not borne by true sorrow over their sins. It is a miserable delusion that cannot stand either in temptation or in death, a delusion more dangerous than open unbelief. Ah, if only such souls might not be found also amongst us. Perhaps not a one of us belongs to those godless of whom the scriptures say that they are not frightened of hell for one second. Are there not, however, several among us who, even if they are now and then disturbed, still have never found that true godly sorrow over their sins, which thoroughly converts the hearts? Ah, you unhappy people! Perhaps you have heard and read a thousand times that you obtain grace. To obtain grace, a person must first repent, then believe, and through faith come to a new life in God. You can perhaps recite this by rote but you have never experienced it in yourselves. You comfort yourself with a faith without repentance. Ah, are you not afraid that your knowing without doing will bring you a frightful end? Do you not know that in your hour of death, your pretended Christianity will collapse like a house of cards? Are you not concerned that the pricks of conscience, which you suppress now, could in the face of death become the flames of despair? Do not resist the Spirit of God any longer. Pray God for that true godly sorrow, which alone is the way to the joy of true faith in time. My friends, a person can have experienced this sorrow and joy and still forfeit eternal joy. Therefore, permit me to show you in the second place how continued divine sorrow is also the way to the joy of seeing in eternity. Undoubtedly, the disciples had experienced true godly sorrow over their sins when they came to Christ. Nothing else than the misery of their sins could have driven them to him. 
Perhaps only Judas the traitor followed Christ to gain some earthly advantage. Though much weakness still clung to the others, they sought above all their soul's salvation in Christ. Peter, in the name of all unanswered, the question, Do you want to go away with us as well? By saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John 6. This answer could come only from the knowledge of the misery of their sins, as we see when Christ had on one occasion miraculously blessed Peter. In the deepest feeling of sinfulness, he cried out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Luke 5, verse 8. Now why does Christ predict sorrow for them even in the future? Because nothing else was possible but that they must experience this. Because Christ's suffering and death was necessary. God's absolute power and wisdom consists in this, that he does not, because of another matter, have to do something against his will, as we men. No, what God lets us experience, we experience because it is necessary and wholesome for us in this way and no other. Thus it was also with the sorrow of the disciples. To be sure, it had its outward cause in Christ's suffering and death, and in the withdrawal of his visible presence, as well as in the enmity and rage of the world. God's aim, however, was that the disciples should be led on the way of sorrow to eternal joy. Undoubtedly, if God had let them experience only spiritual and temporal joy, they all would have been lost. They could not have borne the great honor of their office and the glory of their gifts, by which they far surpassed all men, even the prophets. They would have become secure and proud. But the sorrow into which they were continually reduced by their faithful God preserved them. When Paul repeatedly begged for deliverance from his severe worries and afflictions, he received this answer from God, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, 2 Corinthians 12. God did not lead only the disciples on this way. He goes that way with all his Christians. When at the beginning of our text, the Lord says to the disciples, a little while and you will see me no longer, he gave a short description of the life not only of the apostles, but of all Christians. Of course, their life is not a continual unbroken sorrow but a continual interchange of joy and sorrow. The basis of their joy is that they see Christ, that is, they are certain of his gracious presence. The grounds of their sorrow is that, at times, yes, that they often do not see Christ. They become uncertain of his glorious presence. Christians experience not only the afflictions common to their age, but because they are Christians, they go through special trials, such as disgrace, contempt, persecution. But that is not really the subject of the Christian sorrow. If Christians sorrow over their cross, that is only a weakness of their flesh. Yes, a more worldly than godly sorrow. Their afflictions should really bring joy and not sorrow. No, the Christian sorrow consists in something entirely different. True Christians know of no greater treasure in this world than God's grace and living according to God's will. This alone makes life worthwhile, turns a veil of tears into the place of joy. 
However, as long as they live on earth, they never progress so far that they can either comfort themselves without interruption in God's grace or perfectly fulfill the will of God. They are not yet entirely spirit, but still have much flesh in them. Today, they believe with complete confidence. But by the next morning, it is as if their faith were extinguished like a light. The old unbelief again forces its way into the heart. As soon as their faith becomes weak, they lose their power to battle against their sins, love God and their neighbor, serve Him, and even deny themselves. If they do not immediately fall from grace, this always brings on such a severe struggle that they must groan with the Apostle Paul, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7. And the Christian lives through many such days when he must wage this conflict. Often, there are also longer periods of time in his life when he feels and feel so painfully, well nigh only his unbelief and sinfulness, that his heart is almost always full of groans. The remembrance of his past, a glance into his present life, fills him with sorrow. The thought of the future, with sorrow and fear. Many suppose that when a person becomes a Christian, he must always live in joyful faith and love. That is by no means true. Even the fathers in the faith, an Abraham, a David, a Paul, a Luther, have sighed more than they exalted. The true nature of the outer and inner life of a Christian is expressed in the words of Christ, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. Now one experiences certainty, then doubt. Now rest, then unrest. Now power, then weakness. Now joy, then sorrow. In short, a continual conflict. Only false faith is without temptation. True faith is always tempted. He who experiences nothing of this, yes, does not experience something of this daily, has a sure sign that his faith is only an empty, powerless fancy. How fortunate are they who must confess that they have almost never completely freed themselves of trouble, sorrow, and worry of heart. If they can speak of almost nothing else but their incurable corruption, if they must speak to God with that hymn which concerns the good they think they did, speak and do, if something good is in my life, then it is truly thine. Happy are they. Without the feeling of the misery of their sins and the sorrow of their heart, they would never remain with Christ, but would soon become secure, proud, and self-righteous. The sorrow that ever and again visits them is the means that God uses to keep them with Christ. Oh, blessed is he who allows himself to be kept with Christ in this manner. He is on the road to eternal life. As Christly expressly says at the close of our text, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Oh, my dear brethren, let us then gladly go the way that the Lord leads, the way of godly sorrow. His aim is joy in time and eternity. Many times in the trouble of your souls, the question still escapes our weak heart. 
Ah, Lord, why? But on that day, when we shall see God and reap the joyful harvest from our tears, we will ask God nothing, but will laud and praise him that he has led us through suffering to eternal joy, through trouble to eternal rest, through sorrow to eternal joy. Amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in, and we pray that God's Word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.